Redfield Arts Audio. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Narrated by Mark Redfield and Mackenzie Mentor. This podcast brought to you by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, as told by Mark Redfield. Music by Jennifer Rouse. Available worldwide on Audible and wherever audiobooks are sold. Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that. I am who sure. are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. And what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Why, it's old Fezziwig! Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again! Come in! Come in and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens As told by Mark Redfield Music and sound design by Jennifer Rouse From Redfield Arts Audio The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing left to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It certainly didn't beg a description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the Mendensensee squad. In the vestibule below was a letterbox, into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat 
walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she only had $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out of the window some day to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she cluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped to read the sign, Madame Sofroni. Hair goods of all kinds. One eight up, Della ran, and collected herself panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophroni. Will, Will you, you buy, you buy my, hair? my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours trip by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone, and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch, 
As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it. And she hurried home with the 78 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. Which is always a tremendous task, dear friends. A mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fella, he was only 22 and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door, as immovable as a setter on the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly, with that peculiar expression on his face. Ella wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, don't look at me that way! I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It grows out again. You won't mind, will ya? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say, Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? Asked Jim laboriously as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs on my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, 
Let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. The dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper. And then an ecstatic scream of joy. And then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped for so long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted ornaments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh! Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of a bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me a watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, he said, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men. Wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here we have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. Everywhere they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Redfield Arts Audio. Redfield Arts Audio presents Mark Wheatley's Frankenstein Mobster. The most amazing story of crime ever told. 
starring Daniel Roebuck. You, Twitch Randall, and Hyde. He did it right here. You murdered me. Debbie Rashawn. My name is Terry Todd, Detective Terry Todd. My father was a good man, a good cop. And Mark Redfield. Quiet, Smiley. We don't sell talismans in the dead end, no matter what they'll pay. You don't want any monsters to reap talisman benefits, now do we, sir? Monstro City, where monsters live and mobsters rule. Gentlemen, what you see before you, this sleeping giant swathed in bandages that I have named Frankie, what your eyes see are four dead men. What the hell? A mad scientist created a better mobster. The Frankenstein Mobster. Adapted from the graphic novel written and illustrated by Mark Wheatley. He's got the back window out, Daddy! Get down, Yasmini. They can't get shooting at us. I, I can't see. Who, who is that hanging out the cop car window? One of him. And better than 20 oh. of us. It seems I'm neither a monster or mobster. Stop! See this? Is that what I think it is? Talisman? I didn't get you one. I got sauces. Well, they're illegal. They... It's a good luck charm. And the illegal good luck charm. Cars. How the hell did you get tipped off about this? Are you okay? I think so. Can you run? I think so. Run! Original music score and sound design by Jennifer Rouse. Adapted, written, and directed by Mark Redfield. Redfield Arts Audio presents Season 13, starring Rick Deskin, Mark Redfield, Brink Stevens, and Andy Schrem. Come on, man. Open up. Somebody called 911. I think I hear well, it's opening night of the Majestic Theater's 13th season of their annual big ticket item, A Seattle Christmas Carol. And I, stage manager Nick Papadakis, call me Pop, they all do has locked himself all alone inside the tech booth, dressed as Ebenezer Scrooge, but I'm getting way ahead of my story. Hi, I'm here to see Jane Bigelow, please. I bet you would. And what makes you so special? I'm sorry? Of course you are. Who are you? Oh, I'm sorry. We know that. I'm sorry. I'm Nick Papadakis. I'm the new associate stage manager. Oh, you're the lucky lottery winner. I'll buzz her down. Take a seat. I was about to sit when through the stairwell doors popped. Hi, I'm Jane Bigelow, ASM for the Majestic. You must be none other than Nick Papa... Pa- Papadakis. Papa, Nick. Just call me Nick. Maybe I'll just call you Pop. Come on, I'll give you the tour and we'll be in time to hear the director's pep talk before the rehearsal this afternoon. The first person she took me to see was the head stage manager, Amanda. Everybody calls her Commander Reese. My fault. I started it. But don't ever call her that to her face. She'll deck you. Amanda, this is our new associate, Nick Papa's... Nick Papadakis. Nice to meet you. I look forward to working with you. Nice meeting you, Papadakis. Pop. Just call him Pop. Everybody does. Nice meeting you, Nick. Nice meeting you. 
Is she okay? Yeah, it's been a little rough around here lately for everybody. It's been brutal. And then all the weirdness, all the little freak accidents and things that have been happening, nerves are a little frayed. Well, maybe it's the handiwork of Jack Fairbank. Pop, don't ever mention the theater ghost again. That's taboo. Never, ever, never. You are fearless leader. One of the finest directors I've worked with and one of the finest writers to ever put words in my mouth. Thank you, Chip Bateman, an actor's actor. Yours is the finest Scrooge we've ever seen in a local scene. High praise coming from you, sir. He doesn't make these speeches before every rehearsal, does he? Shh. Yes. And I just want to tell you all, my heart is bursting with pride at what you've done. Oh no, who has done this? Villainy. That is evil in this place. Elska, what happened? You see a ghost? Look on this with your own eyes, Tank. I'm looking. What am I seeing? Nothing. You see nothing. All my beautiful clothes for Christmas Carol gone. Jacques Fairbanks. You go too far this time. Mortachi tua. I don't know. I think our ghosts have been messing around a bit. But I'm hearing rumors. Rumors? That maybe somebody else is behind all this. Somebody who wants to maybe close the theater and sell the building. I hear those rumors too. Jerry Jerome, bastardo. That's what I hear. Jack? No, Nick. Jack. Don't you know any better than to sneak up on a ghost? Wait, you can see me? Hear me? Like Hamlet's old man. I hate playing Cratchit. We should switch roles one year, like Olivier and Gilgood did at the Old Vic. Switch playing Scrooge and Cratchit nightly? Yes! You're mad as a hatter. You'd never remember all the lines at your age anyway. Chip has a good point, Herb. Scrooge has lines? <laughs> I'd never known it, the way you mumble and stumble around on stage. You! <laughs> Son of a bitch! Stand by. Come on, Hercules. I only weigh 49 pounds. Stop squirming! I swear, I'm gonna drop you on your head. You drop me, you weenus? I'm gonna tell Jane that you touched me. Why, you? <laughs> gotten away with it, too. If it wasn't for you meddling spooks. Now give me my scrapbook. Oh, that feeling. To recapture that feeling again. What a glorious night. You were marvelous, Jack. That's what it's all about. That's life in the theater. Available worldwide on Audible and other fine audiobook sellers. Discover our newest audiobook releases at redfieldartsaudio.com. Happy holidays from all of us at Redfield Arts Audio.